All right, all right. Good morning, everyone. So why don't we get started? Um, it's been a while since I've taught. So I'm Jim Power. I've been at this church since 2006. Some of you know my wife, Laura, because she's on some of the worship teams. I sort of usually teach class once, um, one quarter of every year. The routine uh, for folks who are new is it helps me to prepare to write stuff down. So I bring in my notes and try to leave them in the back by those doors there. So feel free to get up and grab them if you don't have them already. Um, my understanding is that Ellie will also put them in the sermon section on the website. So if you ever miss a class, you can listen to it uh, by going to the sermon section and poking around. You should be able to find it. You can also print off the notes if you want them. If they ever help you teach a class, you're welcome to use them. I don't care about other people taking them for their own purposes and using them. They're just a open source resource. All right. Um, I generally start class by praying. Does anyone have anything they wanted the class to be praying about? Yeah. Taken where? Oh, dear. Okay. Yeah, that it makes me nervous when I hear that because I remember Pastor Randy. Anyone else? All right. Well, let's pray for the class. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your grace, your love, your mercy. We lift up our brother Stan. We don't know what's going on with him, but we trust that you do. We beg you for mercy and healing for him, that you would guide him to the people that can provide him the help he needs and that you, they would figure it out and that in your mercy it would be something he can recover from quickly and fully. We know there are many other people in this congregation uh, facing burdens of all different kinds, medical, financial, relational. We ask that you would help us to look to you for the solutions and the way forward through those situations, that in your grace and mercy you would help us. We ask that you would also help us to look for ways to help each other and encourage each other through those situations. We thank you so much uh, for your word and the encouragement it gives as we talk about the Gospel of John. We ask for your spirit to guide us and help us to understand it and see how we can apply it in our own lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, I've been teaching the Gospel of John for a while now. We're basically up to chapter 12, but it's been a while, so I wanted to uh, reorient us, and I'm going to do that a little indirectly because we're going to start um, by talking about The Last Samurai. Anyone remember that movie? It's been a while now. It's been a minute, as they say. It's part of the genre of movies that I call um, young, talented guy gets mentored by wise elder dude movies. <laughs> and, like, Hollywood loves that theme. So in that movie, there's the older samurai who's the wise elder dude, and he sort of helps broken young soldier Tom Cruise uh, put the pieces of his life back together. And there's one scene where Tom Cruise walks in while the wise elder dude, who's a samurai, is looking at a cherry tree, this gorgeous cherry tree that's in blossom, and he says something like, the wise elder dude says something like, if you spent your entire life searching for the perfect cherry blossom, it would be a life well spent, or something like that. I may not have that quote exactly right. And he's not all wrong. Um, if you study flowers, 
the closer you look at flowers, the more impressive they are. The more beautiful they are, the more you realize their beauty is completely functional, and they just grow out in the fields, in the woods, and it's stunning the closer you look at them. And I would argue Bible verses are the same way. Uh, There are hidden depths in Bible verses, and the closer you look at individual verses, often the more stunned you are by what you see. And there are certain Bible verses that you could focus on for your entire life, and it would be a life well spent. One of them's right up above me here. John 3.16 is absolutely amazing. You can kind of read it. And you get this overview of the gospel that's amazing. But the deeper you look at it, the more challenging it is. Uh, The more you study John and understand what the world is and how the world is in rebellion against God, the more amazing it is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And... You could wake up every day and think about, well, what does that mean for my attitude towards the world? And then you get to the end of the verse and you find out that those that don't believe in the Son will perish. And so what does that mean for my relationship with the world? What do I need to do to make sure I'm not one of those people? And how do I balance those two things? How do I love the world yet make sure it doesn't lead me astray from the sun. That's something you could ponder every day. So I would argue Bible verses are like flowers. You can look at them over and over and over. They're gorgeous, right? But if all you did was look at the flowers, you would miss scenes like that. And I would argue forests are gorgeous, too. They have their own beauty. And I would suggest to you that the Bible as a whole is not just a collection of flowers. It's a forest. And it has been laid out in a particular way so that the landscape of the forest also communicates to us. And you could spend your entire life contemplating the plot of the Bible and the way that books are put together, and that would be a life well spent. And the difficulty is there's so much in there, um, I don't think any of us have the time to do it justice, but I think it's good to cycle back and forth between looking deep at nitty-gritties and how they apply to you, and also taking the time to step back and look at the big picture and think about, well, what can we glean from the big picture? So today is going to be a big picture day. We're going to try and reorient ourselves to the Gospel of John by thinking about the big picture of why this former fisherman turned full-time minister wrote what he wrote and what he wanted us to get um, from the big themes of his book. So first, what are, what are the major themes of the Gospel of John? And I think one that jumps out at you immediately, because he hits you with it in the very first book, is that John argues this guy named Jesus a carpenter, or we might say a stone worker, was not only human, but also part of the divine trinity, including the Lord revealed in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, whom Jesus talks about as God the Father, and that Jesus described his role in the trinity as the Son of God. And I think a lot of times, whether that's true or not, is presented as this grammatical examination of John 1.1. But I think if you read John's gospel as a whole, you'll see his argument for that flows throughout the gospel, and he argues for that in many different ways. 
Um, one of which that is important is he argues Jesus preexisted his birth in Bethlehem and even the world's creation, and that he comes to earth from heaven. And that's really interesting to think about coming out of the Christmas season because we've just talked a lot about the manger and Jesus being a baby, and all that is absolutely essential. Matthew and Luke are our main sources for that. John starts, doesn't talk anything about that. Instead, he goes back to even before creation and talks about Jesus' preexistence and throughout his gospel talks about Jesus having been at the Father's side, having seen the Father, and having come to earth. So that's one of the ways he argues Jesus is this unique thing we've never heard of before, which is someone who's both human and divine, and he came to earth from heaven. Another way he argues it um, is by saying to know Jesus is to know the Lord. And this is something that was totally new from the Old Testament. The Old Testament viewpoint the Jews had gleaned based on what they read in the Old Testament is there's God and there's human. If you look at humans, you're not going to understand God. And Jesus shows up and now, for the first time, the only time, he says, you can look at me and know what the Father's like. And so he argues that to know him is to know the Lord, that he and the Lord are one, and yet at the same time, he can talk about God the Father as someone different, as though they're different people. And so that's where our doctrine of the Trinity comes from, that they share one nature, they're all divine, they're one being, but yet that one being exists in three persons. And John argues that throughout his gospel. The last thing I think that I wanted to mention is he argues that Jesus goes back to God the Father in heaven. That's one of the ways we know that what he said is true, is that God the Father demonstrates his acceptance of that when Jesus ascends to heaven at the end of his ministry. Yet, Jesus argues he's present with his followers through the Holy Spirit. That only works and makes sense if they're a triune being. So if one is present with you, the other members of the Trinity are present with you also. And so the sending of the Holy Spirit is a key part of this doctrine that John reveals to us. But Jesus also makes some other radical claims, according to John. One is that he claims he's the sole provider of the means for human beings to have a relationship with the Lord that reveals himself in the Old Testament. So, for example, he says, I am the gate. I am the resurrection, I am the life. He conversely warns repeatedly, any other way is doomed to failure. Another claim he makes that's remarkable and that he focuses on throughout the Gospel of John is that he immediately provides a type of life that survives death and lasts forever if you accept his authority and claims and place your faith in him. However, he also says that such people will be resurrected at the last day, meaning sometime in the future when there's this divine judgment. So you get life that lasts forever, but he never says you're not going to have to go through physical death. So it's important to understand that Jesus doesn't promise you're going to avoid suffering in this life. And we'll talk a lot more about that as we get towards the end of the gospel. And he predicts that per God the Father's will, he'll die and rise again on the third day, implying that he also isn't exempt from physical death and suffering, and that it's his death that provides the means for followers to have an eternal relationship with God. And interestingly, um, I think it's also revealing what Jesus doesn't do in the Gospel of John. 
He only uses physical force on one occasion in the Gospel of John. We think from the other Gospels, there are probably two occasions when he does it. At the beginning of his ministry and at the end of the ministry, where he basically walks into the temple and says what's happening in the temple isn't right, and he clears out the temple and says, you aren't worshiping God the Father correctly. So the one place he ever asserts physical force is actually in the temple. And he says nothing about the political problem of Roman authority over Israel. He rejects all invitations to pursue political power. He makes no promises to improve his followers' social standing, financial standing, political standing. And the reason that's a big deal is we're going to talk more about everyone that he meets thinks that's what he should be focused on. Okay, So those are his claims. Pretty remarkable. So John, I think, knows that if he shows up and he tells you that, you're going to think, well, that's nuts. Why should I believe that? And so he structures his book around a series of signs that he hopes will be persuasive to you that those claims are true. And in fact, a lot of commentators refer to a big chunk of his book as the book of signs. Some commentators argue, and I think I agree with them, you could call the whole book the book of signs. That actually the point where a lot of people say, well, this is the end of the section that I call the book of signs, actually the biggest signs are yet to come. The very biggest sign is his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. So this is a chart that shows you the signs, the major signs John chooses to provide. It begins with prophecies by John the Baptist. Then we see Jesus asserting authority in the temple and saying if the leaders destroy this temple, he will raise it again in three days. I think one of the reasons John takes pains to sprinkle throughout his gospel little hints that Jesus is going to die is I think John knows one of the arguments you would make if you hadn't grown up in Sunday school when you heard his gospel is some equivalent of scoreboard, right? Like if you watch football, and I know some of you don't, but if you watch football, one thing you see a lot these days is some guy on a team who's losing 7-30, to 30, score a touchdown, and then he spikes the ball, and he's like, yeah, 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 look at me, look at what I did. And someone on the other team goes, scoreboard. <laughs> right? That's pretty good rejoinder. It's 30 to 13 now. So what? And that's a problem John has. You're telling me this Jesus was so great, but where is he? And what happened to him? He was crucified. He was put in a tomb. Scoreboard, right? And one of John's arguments is, no, no, no. Jesus controlled that. That was the plan. And so you need to know Jesus predicted that would happen. That's how you know that's part of the plan. It's not the end of the story. And so one of the important signs is Jesus predicts that at the very beginning of his ministry. It's not like things got out of control at the end of his ministry and something happened he wasn't expecting. Then we have the Samaritan woman healing a paralytic, providing food to 5,000 people. Again, he says, when people have lifted him up, which includes his crucifixion, he heals a blind man. Finally, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Pretty impressive. He cites the high priest Caiaphas, who said, it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish with absolutely opposite intent to how John sees the significance And last, he's crucified, he's stuck with a spear, he's dead as a doornail, so dead they wrap him up and put him in a tomb and leave him there, and then he's resurrected, appears to his followers. 
So those are the signs. John says, I hope you look at that, you think it's credible, and that leads you to believe what I say the significance of the signs is, those claims. All right, let's break now. Questions, comments, concerns about what we've said so far? All right, let's keep going. So one of the other things that emerges that's important, I think, in getting the Gospel of John is that he repeatedly and unapologetically shows Jesus and says Jesus is connected to the Lord depicted in the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures and the program that the Lord started through the nation of Israel. And the way he does that is he says Jesus is the Christ, which is a synonym for the Messiah, which means anointed one, which means the Davidic heir. He applies messianic titles like son of God. He also identifies Jesus as the son of man, which connects back with the prophet Daniel. He relies on John the Baptist, Jewish prophet. He shows Jesus observing Jewish festivals like Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Dedication. Jesus treats the temple as the place where God the Father manifests his presence and it's appropriate to worship. He teaches in synagogues. He chooses 12 Jewish men to be his closest followers. You can't miss that Jesus is saying, I am the continuation and am doing the work of the Lord, you got to know through the Hebrew scriptures. But at the same time, he reveals stuff that no one else expected based on the Old Testament. And this is one of the interesting things about the Gospels. The conflict portrayed in the Gospels isn't people walking up to Jesus and saying, what you're saying doesn't make sense because we all know Zeus is the real God. They aren't coming up to him and saying, look, the Romans are in control, so their gods must be the most powerful, so we should be talking about Jupiter. They're coming up to him, and they're arguing about the Old Testament. And I think this should be sobering to us. What John and Jesus argue is that you have misunderstood the Scripture in fundamental ways if you think what I'm saying to you is not true, and a lot of people react by saying, no, we'd rather rely on our understanding of the scripture than what you're telling me, Jesus. And so you can be familiar with the scripture and get totally off track spiritually. And a big part of what's going on in the gospel is Jesus trying to convince people they are off track spiritually Here's what the Hebrew scriptures really mean, okay? And so one example of that is the Trinity. In traditional Jewish interpretation, the Lord is simply one being, although one could speak of the Lord's spirit, but I don't think anybody's thinking of the Lord is one being with three persons who can be regarded as separate persons, they're not assuming divinity and humanity can be combined. They're assuming the opposite. They are focused not on resurrection, although that's out there, but on earthly blessings that they can experience in this life. And it's not unreasonable for them to think that. If you read Deuteronomy and see all the blessings for covenant obedience laid out in Deuteronomy, they're assuming having a human as an object of faith would be blasphemy and idolatry. They're assuming the point of the Messiah showing up is to end the oppression of God's people. And so the Messiah should never suffer. They're assuming the earthly appearance of the Messiah is going to coincide with the time of divine judgment on humanity. So that's going to be the end of history, not the beginning of the end. Okay? 
So part of the plot of John's gospel, and one of the things that John and all the gospel writers do is interesting, is they all have an agenda, but they don't just give you a list or a bullet point like I'm doing. They tell you a story. And when I say story, I don't mean they make it up. It's a documentary. They're telling the truth, but they tell it in story form, and they follow a plot like any good storyteller. And a major plot point in John is figuring out Jesus' identity. He shows you this guy who shows up and starts doing amazing things and saying intriguing things and sometimes things that are offensive to the people that are hearing them. And it's, what, who is he really? And he shows you conflict among Jesus, the Jewish leadership, the disciples, and the crowd. And then everyone also starts asking, well, what is Jesus' goal? What's his mission? And again, the same groups have different expectations. They have different assumptions. And there's this conflict that develops. And one narrative twist that John does that's really interesting and makes his narrative even more complicated is he writes this with at least 30 years or so of reflection on what it all meant as he lived through it. And he tells you what he thinks it all means in his prologue. He summarizes it, and that's where he tells you, look, I think Jesus was divine. I think the reason he came here was to provide you with salvation. If you accept these claims, he will give you the right to be part of the family of God and have eternal life. And then he spends the rest of the gospel trying to persuade you that, yeah, that could actually be true, as incredible as it sounds. And so what he does is he actually puts you in a better position than the people that were interacting with Jesus to understand what John says is the true significance of what Jesus is doing. So to go back to movies... How many of you, go even further back, saw the movie Gandhi? Anyone else? Yeah, we've got a few old people here. I mean, that's really old now. Gandhi starts with Gandhi's funeral. Then it goes back to Gandhi as a young man. And so you know where the story's headed from the beginning, right? There's a reason why the director made that choice. There's a reason why John makes the choice to start his gospel the way it is, and it's to help you form, and his, his goal is to help you more quickly realize what Jesus was saying and the significance of what he was doing than he himself realized. And he freely admits throughout his gospels multiple times, when Jesus did this, we didn't get it. And so it's kind of fascinating. I would argue we are actually in a much better position to figure out the significance of what Jesus did than people that met him because there's actually less noise now than there was when Jesus was there. One of the things John reveals to us is when Jesus is walking around, his opponents are actively putting out misinformation about him. So... If you were sitting around your dinner table talking about who is Jesus, you'd hear all these sources that you really respect. Maybe your mom, your dad, your uncle, who is part of the Jewish leadership, all telling you who they think Jesus is. You're hearing rumors that don't accurately describe what he's doing, and you're trying to sort all that out. 2,000 years later... All that's gone, and if you were like me and raised in Sunday school, you were told this is the best source about Jesus from the time you're able to think. And so a lot of the distractions have been wiped away, and it's actually easier in some respects for us to see the significance of what Jesus was doing because a lot of the noise has been filtered out. So as we read the gospel and we see people not getting what Jesus is saying, we need to be sympathetic to them, 
because they're actually in a very difficult position. What they're hearing Jesus say is completely different from what they were told the scripture meant all their lives. And they have to sort through that. All right. Questions, comments, concerns about that? All right. So let's talk a little bit more about what those groups are expecting and why they're expecting. So part of getting the Gospels is understanding these people have good reasons for their view of what the Messiah should do and who he is. So let's take a look at Isaiah, a passage we just read as part of Advent, Isaiah 9. Verse 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So if you're an Israelite and you read that passage, it's very easy to see how you could come to that passage and think, you know, the biggest problem in my life as the Roman Empire. And if we could just get rid of the Roman Empire, it would be good. And here we have evidence that someday a Davidic heir is going to show up and he's going to take care of problems like the Roman Empire. And there's nothing in here about him getting crucified, of him suffering, of there being any sort of terrible setback of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end and it'd be easy to think that starts politically as soon as he shows up right now that seems crazy right to think that some guy could show up and take down the roman empire but go back to deuteronomy as randy was saying The Romans weren't always the biggest bully on the block. There was a time when the nation of Egypt was, right? And if you're an Israelite, one of the things you believe without a shadow of a doubt is that a guy named Moses showed up and he took down the Egyptian empire, right? So, uh, for example, in 720, he talks about Um, how they're going to drive out nations before them. So start at verse 19. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the people you now fear. So, I took down through Moses a nation much more powerful than you. Now I'm going to help you take down other nations more powerful than you. The generation that heard those words sees the walls of Jericho fall down. 
So part of the tradition of Israel is that the Lord can intervene and supernaturally deliver military victories that are unimaginable by human power, right? So when you combine that with verses like Isaiah 9, why couldn't the Messiah show up and take down the Roman Empire, right? And as always, what we want to believe are the easiest things to believe. And so if you hate the Roman Empire and more than anything else want to see it gone, that makes this that much easier to believe. So that's why everyone Jesus meets is clinging to what we call the messianic expectation that that will happen. Interestingly, you can argue the one group that isn't clinging to that idea is the Jewish leadership. And that's one of the fascinating things about the Gospel of John is that they're the guys that are running the temple They're the guys that get to spend their lives studying scripture. So they should have the most knowledge of the text of Hebrew scriptures, the most exposure to worship activities related to the Lord. And they're the ones in the gospel that seem to expect the least, maybe you could say to expect not at all, that the Messiah could actually show up and defeat the Roman Empire. Um, Let's go to their take on it. So go to John, the passage that, sorry, that Caiaphas speaks. So So 11, John 11. So here's their analysis of what Jesus' ministry means. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So you would expect, based on what I just read to you, that how that verse would end is if we let him go on like this and everyone believes in him, it's going to be just like Moses and God's going to show up and take down the Roman Empire and it's going to be another glorious age of renewed faith in the Lord and it'll be awesome. They don't assume one bit of that. Their assumption is if Jesus whips the people into a frenzy, the Romans are going to squash him like a bug, and then they're going to take away our temple, and we won't have the financial status, we won't have the social status that we have and we like. So what should we do about that? Should we have a prayer meeting? Should we reflect more on what Jesus' miracles mean? No. Let's break the commandments that we say we should uphold, and let's use bribery and deceit and murder to get rid of Jesus so that we can continue to run the temple and promote the Lord. Does anyone see a problem with that logic? So one of the interesting takeaways from the plot of John is that the end does not justify the means. And if you're starting to think the end might justify the means, I question whether you have a good end in mind, right? And that, I think, is very telling for us as Americans right now. Because as we see the direction our own nation is headed, it's very easy to think the end justifies the means. And so we should be willing to use the same tactics that other people use. But what John would tell you is that the most important role you have in your life, if you've chosen to be a follower of Jesus, as being a follower of Jesus and observing his commands and reflecting his character to the people around you 
And so you can never go back to the end justifies whatever means you want to use. But that's exactly what the Jewish leadership does. And what's interesting is if we skip ahead in history, what happened in AD 70? Someone else finally whipped the Jewish people up into enough of a frenzy that they rebelled against God and the Romans came and squashed them like bugs and the Jewish leadership lost their place, lost their financial status. And so it turns out that trying to use real politic and logic and things like murder gets you to the very same place you were trying to avoid in the long run. But it sure looked good in the short run. And that there's a lesson for us in that. Um, we need to be people who look at the long run. All right. So that's one of the main groups that becomes an antagonist for Jesus is those Jewish leaders. I would argue they're looking at this situation through a lens of logic that has nothing to do with faith. And I think the most obvious conclusion to draw on them is that they aren't genuine believers. They've never been genuine believers. And Jesus actually argues that to them throughout the gospel, that if you genuinely believed the rituals that you're performing, you would recognize that what I'm saying is the truth. Then there's this other group out there, the crowd. And they, throughout the gospel, kind of go wherever the wind is blowing. And I would say the difference between them and the Jewish leaders is that they seem open to the possibility that something like Moses and the Ten Commandments could happen again. And so if Jesus is doing things that suggest he might be headed in a direction they like, they're for it. But they do something that I think is very modern and American. Their measuring stick for whether they're willing to believe Jesus is whether Jesus is doing what they want Jesus to be doing. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I've had a lot of coworkers that when I've had spiritual conversations go with something like this, I can't believe in a God that would X. And behind it is some assumption about what they think Christianity says about God that they don't like. Therefore, they don't need to believe in Christianity. And it's kind of the I define reality if you think about it. And that's where the crowd's at. And so they're willing to listen to the Jewish leaders if what they're hearing from them is something they like. They're willing to listen to Jesus if they like what Jesus is saying. But ultimately, when they decide where they're going to put all their chips, it's is Jesus willing to do what they want Jesus to do. So as we walk through the rest of the gospel, watch how that plays out. And then last, we have the disciples, the other main group. And what's interesting, I think, from our perspective is to recognize the gospel, the disciples go into this with the very same expectations and hopes as the crowd. So throughout the gospel, the disciples are expecting and hoping that Jesus is going to be this political Messiah. I'd say they're even more open than any other group to the possibility that something like Moses and the Ten Commandments is going to repeat itself. So much so that we know from some of the other gospels that as they're walking into Jerusalem one week before the crucifixion, 
They're arguing about who should be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom when he sets it up. So they have their own hopes and expectations that are just the same as the crowd. Um, They're devastated, as we're going to see, when things don't play out that way. What's different about the disciples and sets them apart from the other group is that when God doesn't do what they want him to do, they re-examine their expectations and hopes. And they're willing to decide, you know what, I was wrong. I'm going to get on board with what God is actually doing. And so they end up modeling the attitude that John wants the readers of his gospel to have. It takes them a while to get there. And that is both comforting and challenging. Um, God knows um, that we're weak. He has to peel us like an onion, layer by layer by layer. We learn the same spiritual lessons over and over and over. Um, But... The goal is that we get to know the heart of God better and better as we walk with him. As we do that, we shed and let go of the things that we were holding on that are inconsistent with that. And hopefully by the end of your life, you're quite a fine fellow or lady, right? Um, But it's hard. Uh, Because we all have our own hopes and dreams about where life will take us, about our careers, about our finances, about our relationships. We imagine what they'll look like. And generally speaking, they don't look like our original hopes and dreams. When I was eight, more than anything else, I wanted to be a star running back in the NFL. Yeah, that didn't work out for obvious reasons, right? And you have to learn to let those things go and realize because things are not playing out the way you want doesn't mean God doesn't love you. And the other challenge, I think, is that we live in a time when God is invisible. And so uh, one way we can be like the Jewish leaders in a small way is we can come together like this and we can have kind of this kumbaya moment where we sing songs and we focus on the Lord and everything's great during that hour and then the next day um, we face some sort of challenge. It could be any challenge. It could be an ethical dilemma in your business where you can do one thing that makes you some money You could do another thing that's going to cost you money. And you analyze that situation just like the Jewish leaders did that has nothing to do with the God. And you don't assume that God cares about that situation. And when you do that, you're basically acting like an unbeliever. You're acting like the Jewish leaders. You know the truth. You're ignoring the truth. And Jesus would say that's not a genuine follower. And so... It's very important that we realize this is hard. It's hard to apply what we know about God in our daily lives and go through the rest of our week, whether it's at school, whoever we're dealing with, as though God is real and active. He cares about every single one of those interactions, and we need to conduct every one of those interactions as though God is live and cares about that situation and how we handle it. All right. Questions, comments, concerns? Yeah. Yeah, so the 
I think most of you could hear it, but the recording won't pick it up. So the, the comment is, is it a sign of maturity when you can get to the point where you say, you know what, trials are expected, and not view that as an occasion to question your faith when you encounter them? And I think the answer is yes in John's gospel. And, and part of the way he shows that to you is no one in the gospel has that attitude as the events unfold. And it's only, it's Jesus who introduces them to that attitude, and everyone's like, well, that stinks. I don't want to be part of that program, right? And so I think that does tell you it takes spiritual maturity, and we have the advantage of the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us get there, which none of the people, when Jesus said that, had that advantage. And so one of the things that I think is terrible uh, that's run through Christianity and the church since then is the whole idea of prosperity gospel, which I think is just nonsense. And I don't understand how, if you read the gospel in its entirety, you could walk away thinking prosperity gospel makes sense. I mean, there's literally nowhere in John where he says, I'm promising financial prosperity to you. I'm promising that you'll never go through trials. In fact, we're going to see, I think, Jesus is going to argue that what makes God glorious is that God is willing to put aside his interests and even suffer for the benefit of others, and that Jesus demonstrates that for us. That's what made Jesus glorious. That's how Jesus reflects glory, and that's why to John, Jesus' glorification really begins with the crucifixion. And there's this incredible irony, because in the world's eyes, even in John's and everyone else's eyes, as it unfolds, they think that's the least godlike thing Jesus does. No, that, that can never happen to God. That proves he's not God. And John's argument is, no, that's the greatest sign that he is God, because that is the heart of God, to be willing to suffer for the benefit of others. And Jesus tells us, that's what I want my followers to be and do. And so if he tells you that's what he wants you to be and do, I think you can expect to encounter difficulties and suffering. But no one wants that. Yeah, I think, so to take the last comment first, I think, to go all Pocahontas on you, God's like the wind. You can see the effects. 
you can paint with all the colors of the wind, and maybe that's what you were saying. What I'm saying is, well, the wind is invisible to the, to the eye, so you have to use the eyes of faith to see the presence of God. If you do, I agree with you. You can see, some people say, yeah, you can see God's fingerprints all over that, right? What we're saying is we, see, we recognize the presence of God by what he does. But, right. But, you know, if you walk down the street, you aren't going to see God visibly doing something today. That's all I meant. So I believe that's true. So uh, going back to the first point that you were making, I think the tension um, is that and this is where I think the big picture of the whole Bible helps, is that if you take the whole arc of the Bible and go back to Genesis 1, we were created to live in a place that was perfect, in perfect fellowship with our environment, with other people, and with God. And so I think we were designed in such a way that it is distressing when things aren't perfect. And one of the interesting things about Jesus is even he is going to say he's troubled, you could even say distressed, as he thinks about what he's about to go through. And so I, don't, I think it's unavoidable that even Christians, as you contemplate difficulties, you're going to experience stress, you're going to experience emotions like fear, it's what you do with them and how you handle them that becomes important because it's unavoidable that you'll have them until God makes everything right at the end of the Bible and restores perfection. Um, but what is comforting to me that I think we as Christians have the advantage is that you know we're told in between all those things work for the good of those who love God. And so if you love God, there's purpose in the suffering. It's all working together to move us to the point where perfection's restored again. But it, it's delayed. You have to be willing to wait. Yep, and so what Laura's raising is um, the already not yet tension that runs throughout John's gospel, where you already you have certain benefits. Like Jesus says, as soon as you believe in him, you have this eternal life that's never going to go away. And yet, right now, you experience sufferings. And um, one great embodiment of the already not yet tension is an example I heard years ago, I've shared it before in Sunday school, where one Sunday at the church I was attending, we had a woman give her testimony. It was a widow who had lost her husband when she was about 50 to cancer. And one of the examples she used is when he was at the point where he couldn't work anymore, she made a list of 10 things very specific, concrete things she needed that with their resources, she had no idea how they would be able to have. And within a matter of a couple of months, all 10 of those things had been provided in ways she didn't expect. But the thing she wanted most, which was her husband to be healed of the cancer, didn't happen. He ended up dying. And so... I think if you look around, God is visible and he shows up in strange ways, in unexpected ways, in the darkest times to let us know he's there. But there's the not yet of most of us are going to suffer and go through physical death 
as we get into the kingdom. And, you know, part of what the body of Christ is for and part of what one of the advantages we're supposed to have over unbelievers is to help each other through that and encourage each other. That's what's going on. Don't give up hope. Stick together. Carry each other's burdens. Make it a little easier to get through that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Just to sum it up, she said, you know, you, suffering can produce growth, and that in her life, suffering has produced the greatest moments of growth, which I think is very true. God can redeem suffering. I've kept you over, so we better stop for now. Um, we'll actually start um, next week and hopefully cover Palm Sunday.